0: premises I think uh, or the four I'm I'm trying to remember what Stephen Batchelor calls them, I think the four good ideas or something Uh, you know that uh, that they're really good ideas Uh, and I I, yet this morning was reading uh, another book uh, by uh, um, a monk named uh, Analio. Analaya, I'm not sure exactly how to say it, but in the the copy of the, in the book that I am reading by Joseph Goldstein on the mindfulness sutta, thank you so much. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Um, In the copy that I'm reading, he's quoting this particular book all the time. And I, and I heard when I was down in Santa Cruz that this is a wonderful book, so I thought I'd just look and check how he had uh, uh, translated the, the part of the, the first of those four good ideas about life being suffering. And he makes the point that it really doesn't mean that the word, the first noble truth about dukkha doesn't mean that every single moment of life is suffering or that the whole-of-life experience isn't pleasant. And then he goes through some of the many roots of the word dukkha, which is often translated as suffering. And uh, I think I said uh, maybe two weeks ago when I was here that uh, one of the formulations is that uh, the root of the word dukkha and Pali are the same root... Sounds that mean the axle of a wheel on an ox cart, and uh, in the book that I'm reading by Joseph Goldstein, he talks about having taken in his life a trip up a road in a, in, in uh, somewhere in India in an ox cart with some friends going from one village to another, and he said it's a very bumpy ride actually, <laughs> and uh, I was thinking that. Uh, when I read it, I found that charming, thinking of Joseph's a big man, you know he's really very, very tall, and thinking of him scrunched up in an ox cart, bouncing up a mountain path was a sort of a droll idea to have in mind, like a cartoon uh But then I thought about you don't have to be in an ox cart on a mountain, everybody's got a bumpy ride, you know that we're all having bumpy rides, and that in between the ride the bumps, if we're lucky, like speed bumps, you know. They slow down on them, but in between the bumps, you have a chance to look at the scenery. And uh, if we're lucky enough, in the way we our our our, our genes are inherited, uh, in the way that we were brought up, in the point of view that our family had, in the circumstances that befell us as children or as grown ups, then. We have the resilience of mind in between the bumps to enjoy the scenery. And that maybe another way of thinking about it. This is way too folksy, is to think about just trying to do that, trying to somehow balance the mind. And I understood something this morning as I was sitting that I hadn't quite understood uh, just until that moment. So I'm trying to think whether I want to start where I thought I was going to start, or start with that. Maybe I'll tell you that, so I won't forget it, because I just thought about it. And then we'll come back to that, because I want to talk about the painting a little bit. Um, in that, in that, in that sermon on the foundations of mindfulness, uh, the one of the the fourth foundation is the foundation of how things are, really noticing how things are put together in this world, what's true about them. And one of the truths, one of the subheadings of that were the four good ideas, the four noble truths, and the first of them being life is uh, complex, maybe would be a better word. Or uh, they talked about, uh, all, of the, all of the translators talk about, if you don't want to say it's suffering because not every minute is unpleasant, And the Buddha talked a lot about cherishing life, and uh, there's actually some story in the very early uh, stories of the Buddha. It's uh, The Life of the Buddha by Bhikkhu Nanamoli. There's a story of, uh, uh, in the early days of the Buddha, teaching young novices who have joined his community. He gave such a stirring uh, uh, exhortation, such a stirring teaching, on the pain of the suffering of life experience that a number of them committed suicide. And, uh, you know, I did, I, it's a fact. It's a, at least it's in his early stories. And they apparently said, whoops, made a mistake. I overshot. That wasn't what I meant. Uh, it, it has the potential for being tremendously uh, uh, agonizing in the mind. But it doesn't have to be that actually the good news is that there is a, an end to suffering, and that's what. But you know, for me, it's always been a little bit strange, because I take the, the the teaching of suffering to be a very particular meaning of the word suffering, and I'm working with that these days. So the meaning that I have always taken of suffering is the is the definition that suffering is the tension in the mind when it is unable to accept the truth of its experience. Yeah. So it's, it's not that terrible things happen to you. It's that your mind can't stand that the terrible things happen to you. That, um, I, I guess I've told this maybe a hundred times in here, but I, maybe maybe every three months it's worth telling or so. Because my my good friend Martha, who was part of this group for a long time and has now passed on, I think it's seven years now that Martha's gone, when she was sick, uh, with pancreas cancer, she said to me, I don't think I'm being a very good Buddhist about this. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, I'm not opening to the experience. And I said, give me a break. You have pancreatic cancer. You know, Who opens to that experience? She said, well, I said, I think the main thing is that you shouldn't be mad at the experience. And she said, well, to tell the truth, I actually am mad at the experience. So I had to backtrack a little bit, so I said, okay. So what I think about is the main thing is that you shouldn't be mad at yourself for being mad at the experience. So she said, well, to tell the truth, sometimes I am mad at myself. She said, the way it is, she said, though, is I'll think to myself, why me? Why me? I'm young, nothing else is the matter with me, I'm in perfect health. Before I had this, I had nothing at all. I'm just now starting to really enjoy my, my life with my partner. Why me? She said, when I think that, I really suffer. And she said, and then every once in a while, by accident, I think, why not me? These are the things that happen to people. And this is the one that happened to me. And she said, when I think, why not me? I'm not any happier about dying. But my mind is not in such a turmoil about it. Things happen. I am still completely amazed at that little blip of film coverage I saw of a young woman throwing out the opening pitch at Fenway Park at a a Red Sox game a couple of weeks ago on crutches, missing a foot from being near the finish line of the Boston Marathon. And uh, somebody interviewing her and saying, how could you... You know, it's amazing that you're here. How can you do that? And she said something, maybe this exact words. She said, "There's no point in dwelling in the past." I think to myself, Ah, how did she do that? Was she a Buddhist? Did she meditate? Did she understand? That's actually true. There's no point in dwelling in the past, but there's also no point in worrying. And those of us who worry are stuck with it. You know, as a matter of fact, it's embarrassing when people say. Um, you worry my good friend Alta no longer also in this plane of existence didn't worry and she had difficulties in with her grown-up children and their family they had difficulties or what we would label as difficulties and she was inevitably hopeful and cheerful and invariably and I and I'd say you know aren't you worried and she said no she said I've done all I've could, I could, that after you've done all you could, there's nothing you can do. There's no point to worry. Well, for someone who's a pretty bunch of a black belt warrior, that's an amazing kind of a statement to make. But the truth is there is no point to worrying. It doesn't do anything worry having concern when you ought to have concern and looking out for things there's a point to that, but the kind of obsessive worrying, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? I'm convinced it's a gene, because I see it in my, not 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 just to, you know, <laughs> not to take responsibility for it. First of all, I worry a lot less. I don't know it, what's what's true. There's two parts to that. Uh, worried thoughts arise in my mind. I think they arise less than they used to. But worried thoughts arise in my mind if they possibly can. If there's any kind of an uh, ambiguous situation... My mind tends to go to what could be the worst outcome of this, but the other part of my mind says, "Look at your mind, tending to go to the worst outcome once again." You know that. Look at that. You, you know, that's the way it is. You know, and I've and I think that I am as comfortable about that as saying, "You know, my mind has a black belt in <laughs> catastrophic thinking." Uh, I like Mozart. I don't like celery, uh, and I'm short. It's just a fact, you know. It's just a fact. It came with the genetic possibilities, and it probably got nurtured in, if not my immediate family, the times I lived in or whatever. But I I think that the main thing is to be able to say about yourself, I have this, I have that. Alas, sometimes I have illnesses that are physical. My friend Martha other kinds of really devastating physical illnesses. And sometimes people worry about uh, having heard from being around a dharma scene a long time, not uh, when they're really sick with a physical or a, an emotional distress, not being able to be noble about it. They have an idea that we ought to be noble about it. You know, Think about how we compound our problems with, uh, with ideas about how we ought to be. Noble about it. Then they'll be able to tell stories like so-and-so who said, well, <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm not laughing at so-and-so who said, thank you very much, I have no complaints, and then died. I think she was wonderful. I'm really laughing at yesterday. I read, there's a book called Zen, uh, Death Poems of Zen Masters, where they say as their last utterance what the, is their most pith understanding like, uh, thank you very much, I have no complaints, because no complaints would be a great way to live. It would mean I'm not having a problem with stuff. It's a wonderful teaching. One of the, Zen, the death poems of another Zen master is death poems are nonsense. Death is death. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you could make it into a noble opportunity and maybe we'll be able to do it nobly and then we'll be helpful to other people. I hope I'm noble, because then it'll be helpful. People could say, Sylvia so did this. Suzuki Roshi, when he was dying, said, if when I'm actually dying we come to that moment, um, I'm, 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 make a, I'm making a big fuss about it, and I appear to be suffering. So, said, don't worry about it. That's just suffering, Buddha. Don't worry about it. Everybody does everything just the way it happens at that time. So... We're going to talk about, I, I, the, the insight that I had when I sat this morning, which I want to talk about after the picture, but I'm going to tell you so I don't forget to talk about it, is that in that same part of the Satipatthana Sutta where they outline the Four Noble Truths, they talk about the Five Hindrances and the Seven, uh, Factors of Enlightenment. And it came to me that they're both there because they need to be there because the five hindrances are the five kinds of mind disturbances that arise in human minds. My, the disturbance that arise perhaps in mind more than others is the uh, restless mind that thinks of every possible uh, hypervigilant mind that thinks of, oh, could be this, 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 this. That the mind that has to work to relax. But there are four others, and we we'll talk about them. But they all disturb clarity of vision, which is just things happen because they do, uh, because other things have happened, and nothing else could be happening now. That's it. the Buddha said to have said because of that, this, and meaning the whole life. Somebody said the other day is mostly out of our hands. And then somebody else said it's completely out of our hands <laughs> it's totally out of our hands I, what do you, what do you think about that i'm not sure i think when i go to lunch today i can choose what's on the menu but that's only if i make it to lunch you know <laughs> and i'm still alive and i'm not in an accident by then and they haven't run out of something on the menu And uh, what else? If I'm still hungry at that time. What do you think about that free will? What do you think?
1: I think it's just mostly out of our hands, not completely. And I think that has to do with the, the whole worry aspect. You know, it's one thing to have something happen, say to one of your children that is irreversible, you can do nothing about it, and how you deal with it and do you worry or not. It's another thing if something happens, like an illness or whatever, that you might be, but it's not, the outcome isn't certain. And you might be able to somehow um, affect the outcome. Mm -hmm. Then I think you're going, it's just human to worry. Mm -hmm. And worry and worry. Am I doing it right? Am I, could I do more?
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, So. Well, Deb, isn't it, Deborah? Debbie. Debbie. I think one of the things that I read recently is that, that's analogous and not quite so, and not nearly so dramatic as having a child who's in jeopardy, is, uh, before an exam, uh, even you're prepared for the exam, you're a little bit, you're a little bit agitated, you're a little bit worried. I, when I go in to get my driver's license, I think to myself, wow, it'd be really problematic if I don't pass this test, you know. <laughs> There's something, I think, actually functional about a little little hit of adrenaline or cortisone wakes up your mind, and if it's not too much of a hit and you forget everything you knew, it's enough of a hit to keep you alert. (coughs) I heard... um, um, I think this is on this point. Otherwise, it's anyway enough of a point to tell you because it's worthwhile. I saw Marilyn, um, Natalie Desai... And in a live interview at the Rafael last Sunday. Was anybody there? It was fabulous. Natalie Desai is my, currently my great, best loved soprano singing opera. And she's comedic and she's wonderful. And, uh, she's made a film called The Making of La Traviata, which is not, it's still in theater, so it's not on DVD yet. But uh, this is a film of the, uh, the five weeks of rehearsal in Aix-en-Provence last year or the year before uh, for a production that was there. So it's mostly to show the work between the, the director and the singers where the singers come prepared. She said when a singer comes to rehearsals, they've already learned the part. It's not that they don't know the words. They all know the words and they're ready to sing it. What they do in rehearsal is you listen to the director and you... Uh, take his interpretation and put it behind the words. Somebody asked her. So we saw the film, it was great, and then there she was. And one of the questions was, what if you disagree with the director? (laughs) She said, it's not my business to disagree with the director, it's his show. And it's my business to be able to, uh, to, to manifest what he would like, his interpretation. She was marvelous, I thought. And after all these questions, someone said to her, uh, do you ever get uh, stage fright? And she said, "Always, always." She said, "It's been a terrible problem in my life." She said, "I've tried everything." And you have to know that this woman is an amazing, amazing, celebrated, long-time star. She says, "I've tried everything. I tried meditation. I tried yoga. I tried I've tried chi. I tried alcohol. I <laughs> tried drugs." <laughs> what did she say? A few more. She said, "I tried everything. Nothing works." And the thing is that everybody laughed because the truth is that she performs anyway, I think all performers. I don't know. Naomi, do you have stage fright? Of course. Always. Always. recently
2: I said to an actor friend as we were waiting for it to begin, I said, you know, this is suffering.
0: that's it that's it (laughs) and you just do it I think the great thing I'm so glad you shared that and the great thing about listening to Natalie Desai is that she said of course I have it and she goes on she's fantastic and you just do it
2: the interesting thing is the thing that helps me the most particularly when I'm performing is um Getting into the sensations of my
0: body, yeah, Yeah. and getting away from the scary thoughts. So that actually, that particular phrase, "getting away from the scary thoughts," noticing there they are. All right, there's my old friend, scary thoughts. Now, putting the attention someplace else. I want to hold it because that's going to be what the my 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 uh, insight about there are those disturbing emotions, but there are also these seven factors of enlightenment among them calm. Somebody here said, yeah. Was it you who just said, yeah, no? Somebody agreed, and I thought, well, we probably have another performer somewhere over here. Yeah.
1: Um, I I just had a first solo performance, and I was terrified. And um, one of the things that helped me is that I had this mantra going, and I thought really clearly about what that mantra would be. And uh, so the first word was courage. And I thought all day about the other courageous situations I had functioning in my life. Presence, love. And then uh, Ella Fitzgerald, which is mm-hmm. it was her song that I was singing, mm-hmm. uh, Duke Ellington, who wrote the song with Johnny Hodges, who also wrote the song. So <coughs> I just kept saying that over and over again, and it helped me to be there and be transported
0: but present at the same time. So remind me of your name? Peg. Peg. So Peg, in a, in a certain way you and Naomi have said the same thing and Natalie Desai. I see that that that, that flurried energy is there. I notice it and I skillfully choose something else to do. I figure out what's going to work and uh, numbers of things. Like I, I tune in on these people or, I do it anyway, or I said, "There's my old friend." You know, if I'm if I'm someplace and I, for some reason, I, oh, no, not for some reason. You're in a place you don't know the people. I'm happy to tell you I don't have stage fright being here, but then uh, we know each other a long time. But uh, if I if I'm someplace else, and if there's a lot of people, uh, and and if the other people that are. On this panel with me are way more celebrated, and I'm imagining way smarter than I am anyway, or whatever it is, and I feel a little bit uh I look at the people if i'm if I, if they' if i if I don't see them, I imagine them on the other side of the curtain, otherwise, if I'm sitting on a stage and I look at them, I think to myself, well, all these people love me, they all came because they want to hear what I have to say. They are on my side, they're not against me, they love me, and I look at them. And I love them back. And I'm thinking, may, or, may you all be peaceful. May you all be happy. I love you. And then that it 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 makes it possible for me to open my mouth. But once you open your mouth, the stage fright goes away. Yeah. it does, doesn't it? Once you open your mouth, Naomi.
2: Yeah. Nah. <laughs> so it does. That's that's what I meant when I start performing. Yeah. Uh, if, I'm, if I still feel not deeply in it, and deeply in it there are no thoughts, There's you're just being led, yeah. it's coming through you, um, that's when I go to the sensations in my body yeah. that's, it takes a little bit of time
0: but that's a very important th- the thing about one's, that's a, that second part of what you said is once I'm in it, it just goes by itself mm-hmm. and that's the way that, that you're gone at that point you are gone. You are an instrument. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Here I am, and it goes by itself, and so there's nobody left to worry. So, <laughs> so the illusory sense of self that was clinging onto that worry that can, that created that tension has disappeared. Uh, yes. I have
2: my third career. I'm a singer-songwriter helped me a lot, getting over, say, over the years, is that it's not about me, it's about them. Yeah. And uh, uh, I always try to start with the idea that I have something really interesting and good to share, and that's the joy of it. Um, but it once I took the focus off myself, um, that really helped. You know, uh, I'm just here, as you say, to uh, disappear a little
0: yeah. I forgot you told me your name earlier
2: Larry
0: Larry. oh yes it's Larry whose anniversary it is yes so thank you very much listen let's look at the photo for a minute and then we'll come back not a photo, painting. painting so here's a painting I bought do you want me to pass it around so you can yes, look at yes, it close yes, yes, yes. okay so Am- Amara I'll hold it up so the people in the back have an idea of what's coming So anyway, I I, uh, I guess it has to go around a little bit before people can have an opinion.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, not
0: necessarily. No. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk for a minute about my great, my great insight. I'm being facetious. But I, I thought about it this morning. Um, there's one more thing that I want to be sure to tell you. And so I'll tell you now while the painting is going around. I also just finished reading in manuscript Rick Hansen's new book about to come out, which I'm very, very interested in. Rick Hansen, as you may know, is a psychologist, psychotherapist, and he's written a book, a very well book called Buddha's Brain, uh, talking about the neurology of meditation and what actually happens when we say I am changed... How many people here have a meditation practice that they, or a, a spiritual practice that they say yes? I, if I said, do you have a? Are you practicing? You know, everybody, everybody's practicing, trying to be okay, right? So I've been so practicing the whole life. How many people would say since they began to practice they got better? How many people would like to venture an opinion about how come they got better? What happened? Because I think that's very, very interesting. What? I practice as a therapist going
1: into the room, and, I, and uh, what happens is that I'm, I'm, I'm present, I'm listening uh, to the other person trying to feel, what the other person might feel. Um, so it's a complete... State of going from the outside world into my chair to the other person and it's uh, very comforting in many ways even though I might hear something that's really disturbing it's, uh, I can handle it because of who I am in relationship to the other person we're in
0: it together today. so remind me of your name Colleen. Colleen so the numbers of people here who are in some way People who are in, uh, do a work that, that puts them in relationship with other people. My experience as well as a therapist, I think uh, school teachers report it. People who, when they, once they get to their workplace, have to be aware of other people. It, what it does is it pulls you out of your own self. And you actually remember that there are other people out there and that, uh, and that you're being helpful. At this point, one of the things that I keep seeing uh, with the newly emerging research that's happening is that um, it uh, not only makes it—it's not only really nice for a per, for the person who receives services or help or interest from somebody else—they feel better—but the act of serving somebody else has a tremendously uplifting effect on the server. That really, it's that when we think, oh, Bodhisattva, I'll serve, but it's actually for ourselves that the other person has arrived in order for us to, as our redeemer in a certain sense, um, pulls us out of ourselves. For me, it reminds me that there are other people that I can feel useful with. It also reminds me that I'm in a world of people. Everybody's got stuff. Everybody's got stuff. I don't have that person's stuff, maybe, but I have other people's. I have other people's stuff. I'm very interested. So Rick's new book, by the way, is a, he wrote another book called Just One Thing, which is practicing something every day. Say thank you ten times, or you know, little things that you could do every day. But this new book is really a book that posits, and I think it's true, that you can begin to train your mind to notice the arising of an unpleasant feeling or thought having to do with a certain memory and dilute the affect of that thought dilute the pain of that thought dilute the dilute the, the usual thinking feeling that you have from that thought by bringing into your mind at that point some um, neutralizing thought not a not a not true thought so you have to practice that this to, because his his basic premise is that we remember more of the bad stuff that happened to us than the good, that we're wired to be vigilant because that's how human beings do. You have to be on the lookout to not to to escape danger. I think I probably told you a few weeks ago when uh, when I was back after an absence that my husband, having been sick on and off for the last six months and sometimes in an emergency kind of a way. I said, I don't think I'm completely better from it. I you know I feel fine, but I think I'm a little hypervigilant, especially if you take that I, anyway, to begin with, have jumpy genes. Uh, and take a person with a tendency to jumpy genes, and you give them <clears throat> stuff to worry about. They get a little hypervigilant, and the mind gets jammed into hypervigilance. And so it takes a while to settle it down. But the premise of his book is that you can work on settling down. You can, you can f- direct your mind over time to think about, to accumulate a, a kind of an inner bank account of, uh, good things that happened to you, pleasant moments. Not only that you think about it and say, yes, yes, that was very pleasant, but that you actually do as a meditation, that felt this way. I felt this feeling in my body at that time and really marinate the mind in that kind of a feeling. And that over and over again, if you can call to mind these kinds of salubrious feelings as uh, as assuagers of the alarm that comes up with the memory of a bad experience, that you can begin to actually regulate the temperature of your own mind. It's a very interesting, it's it's a very provocative kind of an idea. And I think it's the edge of, um, I think it's a new emerging edge in psychology. For many years in in the 1980s, particularly in the 70s, when I first had become a psychotherapist, what seemed to be the prevailing trend when you went to talk with a therapist about your distress in any particular way was bringing to mind the distress and talking about it and talking about it and talking about it again. And after some decades, it, it seemed to me at the time that maybe that was kind of grinding it in more and exacerbating the already wounded mind and that there would be things that you could do that uh, didn't deny the fact that that had happened, but that it had happened. One of the things that uh, I know about that, that therapists sometimes do uh, with um, to help people who, uh, in thinking about, in retrospect, say, but that was a very narrow escape, but what if I hadn't done X and Y and Z and the mind is about to get frightened again? And if you stop it by saying, but you did do X, Y, and Z, that didn't happen. We, I, I hear in Dharma talks it recircles from time to time, recycles. That people say, I think it was Mark Twain who said the worst things in my life never actually happened to me, and I haven't you heard it a million times. I never actually saw the original quote, and uh, and actually I don't even I'm not even so fond of it because I think the worst things in my life did happen to me. That's why they're the worst things in my life, but many other worse. Possible things that I imagine might have happened didn't happen. But actually the worst things did happen. Otherwise they wouldn't be the worst things. What? Well, what
2: I've been wanting to say is that I think the things you ask, what we can control, and I think attention, our attention, my attention, my intention, my actions. Mm -hmm. I'm at a point of control. I can make those choices. After that, it's done. I can't control the outcome. Right? Yeah. So letting go then at that point is fine, but yes, we do have right action and right intention,
0: correct? We do, we do. And I was going to say of the right action and right intention of being two path parts, I was going to say that wise or right uh, effort, I think, is the pivotal point in the whole Eightfold Path. So just for the people who don't know the Eightfold Path, there are eight ways of training the mind so that it is resilient in times of difficulty, and so that it does see clearly what's happening externally, internally, and in response to that, and make good choices about what to do the next moment. There's a way, there was something that I once read years ago, which popped into my mind this week, because people are now talking a lot about compassion, more more about compassion than about loving-kindness. Which I actually have been waiting to have happen because loving kindness is a sort of a strange word that has not appeared in common speech except uh, since Victorian prayer books. So, uh, where it says vouchsafe your loving kindness and who knows what that means. But it's, it's a complicated thing. But compassion, yeah, compassion people know what it means. And I think that, that the, the what we call metta practice Goodwill practice is actually compassion practice. It's all compassion practice, not just when we see people in desperate states, but compassion practice just because it's hard to be a person and it's hard to have a life without stuff happening to you. And if it's not happening to you now, it'll happen at some time when I listen to the things that people are sharing that have happened to people. Who knew? You know, they didn't. And everybody is going along and then this happens and then that happens and if not yet at another time we realize that uh well when we get that painting back i think it's about that it's about knowing that it doesn't happen troubles do not happen to some people they happen to everybody and loss happens to everybody and disappointment happens to everybody and the person who said thank you very much i had no complaints Doesn't mean that nothing difficult ever happened, but that they happened to a mind that was able to say, well, you know, that, that's, this isn't what I wanted, but I, it's what I got. I've been thinking, uh, for a long time that the path parts are divided, usually the eight of them, into three groupings. Two of them being, uh, wisdom groupings, really getting it about the cause of suffering. Oh, I started by saying before that I took suffering to be really, literally, the mind's inability to relax with what it's got. Um, Gertrude Stein, when she was dying, uh, according to the accounts, I'm not sure, said in an expansive way, I accept the cosmos, to which her doctor is said to have replied, Madam, you would better... You know, that yeah you know, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? <laughs> it's funny to have that much of like it's like it's your choice somehow, <laughs> but uh but really, to have that kind of uh of mind that says, okay I'm dying now, and i you know i i w- i even i wish it were other, but I, it's not it's like this. <laughs> Uh, so the path parts are understa- wise understanding and wise intention. But with that understanding, I could, not only that we are subject to turmoil and suffering, which is a turmoil, but we could actually not suffer about the problems and the loss and the disappointment. And the loss of everything, including our lives, that that would be a possibility. And wise intention is the intention to cultivate that kind of mind. And then three ways of living in the world, which are wise action, wise life, livelihood, and wise speech. They're the ethicality rules. And uh when I first began my practice, people used to talk about them very little. They talked about them uh more or less. As, you know, it, it was the... Um, late 70s and it was a very countercultural time and rules were not in high regard at that point uh and uh so people passed over them they said it's good for, to behave yourself because if you don't you're likely to feel guilty and then you won't be able to meditate so the whole point of ethicality was not to have a turmoil of mind so you could meditate but i think the point of ethicality is that you'll have a happy mind and uh maybe you won't need to meditate, you know, that you'll actually behave in such a way that that, that doesn't create a turmoil for you. What?
1: There's, I'm in the middle of reading a book, The Power of habit. Have you read
0: that? No. It's remarkable. But I, I haven't integrated
1: it yet to be able to speak about it intelligently. But it has to do, like, with habits of mind yeah. as well. So the person who's cultivated that habit of mind that accepts can go there
0: more easily than the person who has a different
2: habit of mind and we can cultivate
0: it. Yes, I I I think that that's part
2: of what we're trying to do here. I think so. I think that uh, It's an amazing
0: book. The Habit, the the power, uh, habit. the power of Habit. Do you know remember who wrote it?
2: No, but it's on my iPod so I can tell you in a minute. Okay. <laughs>
0: You know, that, uh, I, I actually don't know. Sometimes I, I don't like to tell a story that I've told a lot before. But I don't know. How many people here will be annoyed if I tell the story of the woman on the beach in uh, Mexico? Nobody. No. Nobody. Okay. Because it's a long, long time ago. This woman is probably one of the principal, I I don't know her name, Principal forebearers of a forerunners of my taking on a practice, in order to change the habits of my mind, I was um, I was in a resort uh, uh, on the uh, beach in the Sonora Desert in Mexico, probably forty years ago, in a, uh, in the summertime where it's very hot, so you either stayed in your room where it was air conditioned or you rushed out into the ocean. And then you came back where it was like a bathtub and then you rush back into your room but it was a lovely I mean it's dramatic it's dramatic countryside and uh, a different kind of holiday and right next to this hotel that we were staying in was a um, a trailer park and uh, people parked there as a holiday and they're in their trailers and they're in the ocean trailers ocean and uh, there was a place to launch um canoes and uh, my husband and I would go over there and get a canoe and go out and come back so I got to know some of the people in the trail park and there was a young mother with two children who were probably we'll say about seven and um, not yet walking crawling but not walking and uh, she was living there for the whole summer she told me that uh, that she lived in Los Angeles she didn't like to be there in the summertime. So her husband had driven her down with this camper trailer and she's living in the trailer with these two babies. And her husband who uh owned a flight school near Los Angeles flew down every weekend or two days a week to spend the time with them and otherwise he went back. And uh at the time, every time I told that story, I'd say to people, you know, if you realize that I'm a person who constructs worries easily, there are like so many things wrong with that picture. You know, do you remember when you were young and you looked at puzzle pictures where it says, What's wrong with this picture? And like the elephant had two trunks or no tail or something. So what tell me what's the matter with that picture of the woman there on the beach? What's the matter with that picture? What possibly could go wrong? The
2: kids get sick.
0: What if the kids get sick? Where is the nearest pediatrician? It's hot like anything there. Who knows? Where is she getting milk that she's sure is Clean and water that she's sure that's clean. Who's in those other trailers? She's a woman alone with two babies. This one that's crawling is crawling in and out of the edge of the surf. What if she turns around for a minute? What could happen to this baby? There's not too many things. And, and the husband flying back and forth every weekend. Airplane accidents. <laughs> airplane accidents. It's a million things. that's the matter with that picture? And they were having a good time. And in the middle of the night, <laughs> in the middle of the night, there was a huge, huge rainstorm. Thunder, lightning, unusual in that time of year, which is a dry time of year. And there's usually flash flooding when there's a huge rainstorm. And, uh, I, we look out the window, it's really dramatic, raining, cascading rain. And the following day I said, let's go down and see if she's alright, what happened, maybe with all these flooding. So we go down, and the trailer park, in fact, is a mess with outdoor furniture all over the place, and people are sweeping up and cleaning up. And she's sweeping up and cleaning up, and seems cheerful, two babies there. I said, uh, among other, how are you? Fine. How was the storm? She said, it was great. She said, uh, the baby uh, slept right through it, and John would have also, but I woke him up so he wouldn't miss it. uh, (laughs) I think actually that was one of the, she was one of the gurus that you meet on a mountaintop that caused me to think, aha, you could have a different kind of mind. I would have given anything to have a mindectomy or a mind transplant or something, have another kind of a mind. But in that moment, I actually did get it that people have other kinds of minds. They just don't have my kind of mind. And that you could probably, I, I, develop that kind of mind if you practice. And that was way before um, I'd met my my Buddhist teachers. I was waiting for someone to tell me you could change your mind. Okay, what do you think of the picture?
1: I immediately had an impression of this uh, painting. And I thought, before you said anything, I thought, Sylvia's a painter. And I'm a painter, and that's kind of groovy, and I like that because maybe it's something we have in in common. And then I thought, Sylvia has painted herself over and over again uh-huh. in different situations in the painting. And then I thought, oh no, no. Uh, what actually what Sylvia did is she painted her relatives and maybe her ancestors and she had them all over to dinner. <laughs> so,
0: immediately- so thank you very much. No Sylvia's <laughs> not a painter, I wish, I but I'm not. Alexis Lask um is the painter who made that. What else? What do you think of it?
1: What does it mean, Sylvia? What, what does yeah, the word or or
0: uh, do uh, No, I think it's Latin, uh, and I think it means um, we are one. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of us are one. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it means. <laughs> <laughs> My painting. All right, so put it over here. Let's not drop it. Okay, what else? What do you think? Yeah.
2: Alcohol doesn't work.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> 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 what? <laughs> what Susan?
1: Uh, I Work from France. that they all um, about watch your watch your
0: way or the right of way. But they also all had the same faces. I mean, you see, the, I, I don't know the common humanity, or, but, but I mean, everybody is obviously miserable. <laughs> trying to have a good time. <laughs> oh, well, but that's interesting. Do you think they're trying to have a good time?
1: Well originally
2: Ah,
0: what do you think, Vicki? their lot, whatever it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What? Larry.
2: A uh, horse walks into a bar or it a drink. bartender says, why the long face? <laughs> 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 I was talking cattle. You know, back here, I actually, when I couldn't
1: see them, close up, my yeah. first thought was yeah. that they were like dairy cattle. They oh, were sheep. sheep.
0: So no, they're, they're all men. They're clearly supposed to be celebrating, but they don't look very happy. They don't look very happy. Their plates are empty. Their plates are empty.
2: plates are empty. It seems to me that responding to somebody who's here out of the picture, which is you, us, and uh, you, us, has said something that has really made them feel very dismal, like, you know, life is short or,
0: Well, I think you're onto something, Mark. About the life is short; they all know that. Or life is something; they all know that. Uh, What else?
2: I thought, why the hell did Sylvia think she needed that?
0: (laughs) (laughs) My husband said the same thing. Actually, (laughs) yeah.
1: So my first impression was visual because I can't really get the definition until I got it close. And there's this pathway and all these light faces. Like lining the pathway, and it kind of looks like it's this pathway going off into the distance with all these light faces. It was really. And then I looked at it close up, I went, Oh. Eh. Nancy. Well, I heard the words dismal and miserable, and they're not the words that would come to me. Um, there's a gentleness to me about it. I don't, I mean, they don't look celebratory or happy, <laughs> but, um, but miserable or dismal weren't the words that came. There's just something almost sorrowful. <laughs> so again, just very
0: gentle and yeah. kind of sweet. Well, I, I yeah. their
2: mother told them that they had to be there yes. and have fun. Oh. <laughs> 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 what
0: else? Yeah,
1: go ahead. they, like, stunned? Like, what? Yeah. What happened
0: there? Well, I'm stunned is good. Uh, what else were you going to say? I think they're just hopefully expecting the word of God or the word uh, from someone, Uh, they're waiting. They're waiting? Yeah? I just (laughs) thought, even before you were talking, because I know
2: about how you're wired, because I can relate to being wired that way. The only one in the family, you know, or whatever, that's wired this way. And so when you bring it up often, I feel like I'm not alone, I'm not insane, and it's just part of the film, but I work on it. So when I saw that picture, to me, they all look like they were all worried. <laughs> and I thought, and then the next thing I thought was, Woody Allen popped into my mind. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, I, I thought that maybe you bought it as a way of sort of a loving kindness, sort of laughing at your own sort of worrisome mind. And, and I'm not um, judging it because I have the same uh-huh. thing. But uh, I then thought of Woody Allen,
0: when I looked at that picture. Of, uh, yeah, you know? yeah, a little bit. Like the, the beginning of Annie Hall, where the two women, two women's voices, and you don't see them, and yeah. says, or he says, two women are sitting on the, on the porch of a hotel in the Catskills, and one of them says uh this is a terrible foo- uh hotel. The food is terrible, and the other woman says yes, and such small portions <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know, i i yes. Well, you know, I think that also everybody adds to it a little bit. Part of it is not, if I should tell you, that um, Alexis Lask, um, probably if you looked on his website, you'd see his other paintings. This is a genre of painting that he's currently doing. So there were six or eight paintings in this genre of uh, the same face person in other situations that you would normally think would be a fun situation. Somebody in a, on a ride coming over the top of a, of a roller coaster. So somebody coming on a roller coaster ride and somebody else in a situation where you might expect that people's face showed that everything, that they're having a great time. And, uh, uh, I looked at it and the, 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 I just liked it. I just liked it. It spoke to me. Maybe it spoke. To my uh, fundamental melancholy about at one false move and and it 's such a delicate life uh, and one false move, the things that are most dear to you might disappear that 's true, not even one false move, one move, one moment to the next you don 't know you know it 's a very uh, i mean here we are, all of us, and many of us are people of a certain age i mean we we lasted a long, long time, i mean comparatively speaking. <laughs> But, so, and most people do. Most people do. It's the unusual that, that is startling. But there's a lot of startling. And when we listen to people's prayers, there's a lot of troubles in everybody's life. And I tend to have the kind of mind that looks in a subway car in New York and thinks, if I could see into everybody's mind here, everybody's mind would be filled with my sister-in-law and my brother-in-law and my son-in-law and my this. And my dad, the there might also be tomorrow's my wedding, and my I'm going to be a grandmother, and who knows what else is in there. But I tend to notice the stuff that think about the stuff that might any minute hurt their feelings. Um, I think that it, you know the mind chooses A or B in a certain way. I was teaching down in Santa Cruz in a beautiful retreat center. It's a retreat center that's been bought by Gil Fransdahl's Sangha in the South Bay. And they bought a facility in the Scotts Valley that used to be a home for Alzheimer's patients. And it's a beautiful, huge kind of, like a, you take a Victorian house and magnify it so that it could have 30 bedrooms in it. That's what it's got. And the only way that you can guess that it was for old people, just even old people, not necessarily Alzheimer's, but old, is that the corridors are very wide, so you know that everything is wheelchair accessible. But it's beautiful in there, but they did tell me when I arrived that it was an Alzheimer's place. And every time I came into the hall and I saw the wide corridors, I thought of all the people there, and sometimes I thought about, you know, uh, my, both of my parents died relatively young, so they had their whole mind with them. And, uh, but many of my friends have parents who are still around and many of them don't. And I think it's, uh, you know, I I find that so poignant when the person that you know wasn't there isn't there anymore. It's poignant that the person that you know died relatively young. It's poignant that what we know and loved and enjoyed in one way isn't that way anymore. And I have a tendency for my mind to see what's poignant. Probably more easily than what's fantastic. So, uh, what I'm really interested in, in, uh, when I asked Alexis, you know, so I walk in, I looked at this and I looked at all these pictures and they spoke to me about all those people. They all know the secret of dukkha. It's like you can't fool me that this life is a party. <laughs> that um, Anyway, it's what I thought. Anyway. It's more or less what Alexis Lask turns out. So my husband said, why do you want that? (laughs) So morbid. Where are you going to hang it? (laughs) It's in my dining room. Thank you. Uh, He said, I don't get it. What's it about? So I asked the artist who said, all of these people, he said, it's a metaphysical painting. All of these people know something that most people don't know. And uh, he didn't say that in a bad way. Because I think it is sort of in a, uh, it's not in a bad way. I can remember when I began as an adult, as I was sufficiently preoccupied with frailty and and poignancy uh, when I was an adolescent. But then it went away for about 20 years. And I resurfaced in my late 30s when I began reading uh, existential philosophy and Alan Watts and The Buddha. And really, uh, finally, and beginning to encounter Buddhism. My friend Howard Cohn says that when he went on his first Buddhist retreat and he heard people teach the Four Noble Truths and teach about life being challenging for everyone, life is suffering, he said, I heard that, and I started to cry. It was so reassuring for me to know that I wasn't the only person with a peculiar mind, that there were other people (laughs) that saw that this, it's it's the eternal existential dilemma. At some point in life, you look around and you say, "Uh uh-oh, either I'm going to be out of here before everybody that I care about, or uh, I'm not, or I'll be out of here, and then they'll be bereaved. We get it about some, some children early, some not so early. For some people, it's in the center of what they see, and for other people, not—not not even saying good, not good. When I started to read uh, uh, a little bit in existentialism and 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 really um, beginning my reading in Buddhism, I was more melancholy than usual. You know, mm-hmm. at that at that uh, that very same story that I told you about. Oh, it's eleven o'clock. That very same story that I told you about. Uh, it's so funny to remember. It's got to be 40 years ago about being on the beach in uh, in Mexico and um, discovering from this woman that you could actually have another kind of habit of mind. Uh, both my husband and myself had brought along a big stack of books to read because you're either in the, book, in the room, in the air conditioning, or in the ocean. We're reading at that point uh, Alan Watts and... Uh, Suzuki Roshi, and um, uh, Zorba the Greek, who wrote Zorba, Kazamzakis, but all stories about the heartbreak that's part of being inevitably a human being. And we're talking about the meaning of life all the time, and this was supposed to be a holiday, and we were more or less bringing each other down with all our discussions of the meaning of life, and maybe it doesn't have a meaning, and we're just logging through it, and we haven't actually seen, and who knows if we could. Be... Anyway, at at some point in the middle of that week of holiday, uh, I remember. I haven't remembered this in a long time. Uh, he said to me, "Ooh, tomorrow's your birthday," and I forgot that. And here we are in the middle of the desert, and I didn't bring you a birthday present what could I do? I said, well, this is what I'd like for a birthday. I'd like 24 hours from sunset to sunset of not a single word about the meaning of life or the futility of it all or the emptiness of everything. I said, you see all the other people in this resort? They are sitting, they're laughing, they're drinking beer, they're eating nachos, they're eating Mexican food, they're having a fiesta, And we are droning through it with the meaning of life. 24 hours, I want to remember, I want to behave like a regular person. I want to do everything that those regular people are doing, except no smoking cigarettes. I don't want to do that, but everything else, that's what I want to do. Because honestly, we had, so this reminded me of that side of the story. Anyway, (laughs) it's in my house. And thank you for enjoying it. Next week I won't be here because my second cataract is getting removed. (laughs) And the week after I won't be here because I'm going with my husband to a doctor's appointment for him. I think he's well, but we need to go and talk with his doctors about it so you can have us in your prayers on that occasion. And then I'll be back for most of July and a good part of August. And uh, what a pleasure it is to be here. Actually, I never get... I never have... um, Maybe I should. (laughs) I never have stage fright with you because you feel like my family. May all beings everywhere be companioned.
2: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.